You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Let me welcome you. My name is Jimmy Young. I'm the Assistant Minister here at Cranbourne and Christchurch Turidan. As I was sitting here this morning, I thought two things. One, what a great blessing it is to be here. I think back 12 months when we were celebrating Easter week, not like this, not together, not hearing each other's voices. And at the same time, I thought to myself, we are in also danger. Because if you're anything like me, this would be close to the 31st Easter message that I've heard in the last 31 years of my life. And it's very easy to take for granted Easter week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It's easy to take these things for granted. And so before I begin John 12 and unpacking what that looks like for us, I thought I might pray that we would thank God, but also ask him to allow this to be a refreshing time for us, to allow this to wash over us with new eyes. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for persevering and sustaining us, giving us endurance over the last 12 months. We thank you that though we were separate, we were united in you. And yet we thank you for the blessing of hearing each other's voices this Palm Sunday. We thank you for the reminder that you are working all things good for those who believe in you. And this is good. We thank you, Father. But God, we pray that as we enter into this holy week, that we would not allow this to be stale. That this would be, we would look over this with fresh eyes and ears, that this would move us to worship you anew. Move in us, Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is a passage that we would have heard a number of times if you've been to an Easter service before. Palm Sunday, and yet as I was reading it, I was struck by how much context goes into Jesus arriving into Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come out. And in response, the Pharisees have seen that and decided to plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus because they say, if we can go to the next slide, oh, it worked. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. There's a tension here that we are apt to miss because we are not first century Jews. There is a tension here going on. You see, there is uh, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about what the Messiah will look like, the Messianic King that will come in. And some of them, uh, they can roughly be grouped into two different categories. Firstly, there were prophecies that relate to the coming Messiah, as a suffering servant, someone who would be rejected and humble. We can see this in a place like Isaiah 53, where it says he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. As one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. And yet at the same time, there was an expectation that the coming Messiah would be a great conquering king, delivering injustice to the unjust. And so we see this in Isaiah chapter 11. He says, With righteousness, 
The Messiah shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And we go, okay, well that's interesting. We've got a suffering servant and a victorious king. What might be going on here? Well, it's helpful to remember that Israel is under occupation. Rome has taken over Israel at this point. And so if you are occupied, what kind of Messiah do you think you would be praying for? Deliver us. Bring us the victorious king. Kick these guys out of here. And on top of that, there have been a number of rebellions in the last hundred years prior to Jesus. You have Judas Maccabee leading a rebellion against the Syrian Empire. And not, not uh, around the same time, there was a rebellion against Rome. Don Carson, the noted New Testament scholar, says that the Pharisees, the Pharisees fear that popular messianic expectations will be fired to fever pitch and with or without Jesus' sanction, set off an uprising that would bring down the full weight of Rome upon their heads. They fear such reprisals could end in destruction of our place, almost certainly the temple and nation. They fear that Jesus will set off a rebellion, a revolution, and Rome will respond in power. So they start freaking out and plotting to kill Jesus. At the same time, the Jewish festival of Passover, celebrating God leading them out of Israel, is happening. And so when the Passover happened, Jews from all over Israel would come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And so you have thousands of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem. Expectations of a victorious king, pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. That's the context that sets the scene for what we're about to witness. In verse 12, there we go, I'm going to use this screen, that works way better. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The assumption that we make is that the pilgrims that had come in make up this great cloud and had probably heard of Jesus. They might have even witnessed him raising Lazarus from the dead. So they hear that Jesus is coming and they start to celebrate, rush out to meet him and praise him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a quote or a partial quote from Psalm 118 in the Old Testament, 25 to 26, which is this, uh, this celebration of deliverance, a festive procession into Jerusalem celebrating a great deliverer. And so what is happening is that the temperature, it keeps being risen. The temperature keeps being raised of the expectation that this Messiah is who they are wanting, this victorious king. And then they start to wave palm trees, which is sort of a weird thing. Like if, if the king's coming, I'm going, why palm trees? It doesn't make much sense to us. I know Sam had to literally search for a palm tree place because they're, just not, they're not around in Australia so what could it mean? 
Well, palm trees had a very specific meaning for the people of Israel, particularly in that time and place. You see, when Judas Maccabee did lead a successful rebellion against the Syrian Empire, they fated him with music and with palm trees. It's a nationalistic symbol. They even had coins printed with the palm tree. And when Rome conquered Israel or, or beat the, uh, the rebellion in 70 AD later on, they had this coin, palm tree in the middle of it and a weeping woman. A palm tree was the symbol of Judea, the symbol of Israel. It would be similar to us walking down the street waving an Australian flag or the Union Jack or the, fight, the boxing kangaroo. It's a sign of of the nation. Again, they're building up the temperature, leading to this crescendo where Jesus will enter Jerusalem as the king. And yet, do you notice Jesus hasn't said anything yet? What does Jesus do? In verse 14, we find he comes in. There we go. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus fulfills expectations. He's coming in and saying, yes, I am the king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you have been waiting for, and yet at the same time, he subverts those expectations. He is the king, but he's not quite the king they expect. You see, that quote is a quote of Zechariah chapter 9. And in Zechariah, it says, not only is he triumphant and victorious, but in the next slide, he says, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The batter bell shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's saying, yes, I am the king. I am the Messiah, but I'm not the king you expected. You've been praying for a king to lead you out of the occupation. And yet I am the gentle king. I am the king that will not enter with a war horse to Jerusalem. I will cut off the war horse. I will cut off the banabao. I will command peace. I come not as a victorious, conquering king, but the gentle king. They're not who they expect. If Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a war horse, that's what they would expect. If Jesus had started a rebellion, that's what they expect. And yet he is the gentle king, the king they don't expect. And as I sat there this week, I wondered, what are our expectations of Jesus? What are our expectations of when he returns? What are our expectations that he might not quite fulfill, but instead subvert? Maybe our expectation is that Jesus will be totally okay with our middle-class, comfortable, cultural Christianity, where Jesus is one slice of our life pie. And yet the expectation, the reality is that Jesus says anyone to follow him must pick up their cross and follow him and die to themselves. 
Maybe our expectation is that Jesus is nothing more than a good moral teacher, a wise teacher in line with Buddha or Gandhi. And Jesus, in reality, is a second person of the Trinity. He's God. He's not some nice moral teacher with some wise sayings that we can listen to or ignore. He's God. Or maybe our expectation is that Jesus is our therapeutic saviour, that he's there to sit on the sidelines of our life, saying nice things, encouraging things, and comforting us when times are going poorly. But when times are well, when life is going well, he can be ignored and is happy to sit on the sidelines. Who do you expect Jesus to be? Who do you expect Jesus to be? Do you know him well enough to know who he is in all of his fullness? That's a question we're sitting with this week. Who do you expect Jesus to be? Because these people were praying for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, longing for the Messiah, and yet they still didn't fully recognize him. In verse 16, it goes on, saying, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I just love how brutally honest the Bible is sometimes. You know, we expect this to be a, a document full of praise and wonder. And yet the same disciples that wrote this, John, literally was like, look, guys, we had no idea about what Jesus was talking about. We are totally as confused as you are. We did not understand these things at first, brutally honest. And yet the interesting thing is in verse 19 when the Pharisees say, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's interesting because they're commenting on the crowd. The crowd has gone after Jesus. They're praising Jesus. They've seen his deeds. They're worshipping Jesus. And yet the world has gone after him. Isn't that his mission? The very thing that Jesus came for was the world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that God sent his one and only son. What a reach, what a prophetic word. The world has gone after him. Well, that's what Jesus has come for. That people might know him. Goes on in, in verse 20 and 21. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Immediately, there's an answer to their words. The world has gone after him. Jesus is not just for the Jews, not just for the people of Israel, but Greeks, God-fearing Gentiles, had come to see Jesus, to meet with him, to hear about him. They want to meet Jesus. And Jesus' disciples bring them to him. And then Jesus says something very interesting. In verse 23, he answers them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you've read the book of John before, you'll know that this is an, a profound moment because 
There are time and time and time again where Jesus is downplaying expectations, downplaying the, the momentum that the hour has come. He again and again, he wants to hide his identity. In John chapter 2, verse 4, when he turns water into wine, he, what does he say? He says to his mother, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. When he meets with the, the Samaritan woman by the well in chapter 4, what does he say to her? Believe me, the hour is coming. It's not yet here, it's coming. When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In chapter 7 verse 30, the crowd wants to arrest Jesus, but they can't. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8 verse 20, again they want to arrest Jesus, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. There's this build up all the way through the book of John until Jesus says this moment, my hour has come. Something important is about to happen. The Son of Man is to be glorified. This is important. This is central. This is what the book of John has been leading up to. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? Well, Jesus reveals very soon that it's not the kind of glory that we would expect either. In verse 24, until the end of the passage, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. When we think about glory, we think about fame or honour, receiving our dues, people finally seeing us for who we are, that when we receive glory, it will be a good thing. But when Jesus says the Son of Man is to be glorified, what he means is that the Son of Man is to die. His glory is not in the fame, but in death. He's not the king that we expect. John Piper, commenting on this passage about what Jesus is trying to communicate to these Greeks, writes this. My pathway to glory is through death. Do you want to see that? I will indeed bear much fruit, including Greeks like you. But I will not and I cannot bear this fruit any way but through dying. If I leave the road I'm on now and try to be seen by people who want a glimpse of a king, I will remain alone like a seed in a bag, not in the ground, and you will not be saved, not the Jews or the Greeks. But if I go and die on my way to glory, I will bear much fruit. You will be saved and the Greeks will be saved and all who believe in me will be saved. Do they want to see me? This is what I want them to see. See me dying. See me bearing fruit. Jesus' glory is in his death, not what we expect. But through death comes life, through death comes resurrection, through death, much fruit including us. 
We're the fruit of Jesus' death. But then he says a couple of interesting things to us who would follow him. He says, my death as saviour is also the design for your life. Now we are not called to die on a cross, but we are called to follow Jesus wherever he goes, which may include death. Piper, again, commenting on this passage, said that there are four very hard things for us to hear and four very beautiful things for us to hear. First, Jesus says the grain must die. Jesus says that we must hate our life in this world. Not that we are to hate ourselves, but in comparison to what lies ahead. Jesus calls us to follow him on the same road he walked, one that ended in his death on a cross. Jesus calls us to be his servant. And you might sit here going, why would anyone want to do that? Because Jesus very clearly lays out what beauty lies ahead of this road. Jesus says that when we do this, we will find on the next slide that when the grain must die, we bear much fruit. That if we hate our life in this world, we keep our life for eternity. When we follow him on the same road that he walks, we join Jesus where he is in glory. It says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am there my servant will be also. As we follow Jesus, we get to be with him forever. And Jesus calls us to be his servant. The Father honors us. The way to life is through death. And the way to life is through Jesus. He may not be the king that they expected and he may not be the king that we expected and yet he is king nonetheless. And my prayer is that we follow him in his journey, that we would lose our expectations of him and fall in line with who he truly is. That as we read the scriptures, we would see him more and more Follow him more and more, serve him more and more, and worship him in spirit and in truth. Can I pray that that would be true for us? Let me pray.